<laughs> if you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 21. We have got a task ahead of us this morning as we move through four chapters. Uh, God is moving in. Some of you would say, Brent, why would you ever try? You couldn't get through Ten Commandments in two weeks. <laughs> why are you trying to get through so much? It's because God is giving some specific directions. There's a lot of examples, but the same principle of being given God's common sense, law and order, uh, so that society can continue to be free and flourish and multiply. So we're going to be chunking a lot of stuff together in these next four chapters. Uh, and while you're turning there, before we pray, finally... You know, Exodus was a little bigger of a study guide for us, uh, and so it took our publisher a long time to translate it into Espanol, but finally, now that we have six weeks left in Exodus, we have Exodo. Uh, yeah, our Spanish version of uh, the study guide. So if you, if Spanish is your uh, native language, it's easier for you to read in your native language, or uh, if you know someone who needs the gospel, wants to study the Bible, uh, and uh, they speak Spanish, please grab these. They're free on this table. Make sure we get these into the hands of as many people as we can. Also, forgotten first service. Somebody reminded me in first service because they saw my wife post something on social media. I see nothing. It's why I'm smiling this morning. <laughs> but... Uh, we did turn 14 years old as a church uh, this past week. Go ahead, you can put your hands together for that. Uh, 14 years old, September 14th, 2008, we launched as Four Points Church in Pickett's Mill Elementary School, where for eight years, adults sat in elementary school chairs. Now, we always had coffee because we knew we needed coffee, but imagine sitting for an hour because back then we didn't have other campuses. We weren't trying to make sermons, you know, uh, across multiple venues. So we would just show up and I'd say, all right, we're going to start chapter 21. We'll see where we end up. <laughs> That's kind of how we did things back then. They were hour, hour, 15-minute sermons back then. In elementary school chairs, God is good, Amen. Uh, here we are. He's faithful to his word. He blesses those who honor his word and honor his gospel. Uh, and what a privilege and honor to be here 14 years later still doing the same thing. Let's pray and we will get started. Father, I love you. Thank you for all that you do. God, you've been good to us. Father, even, even those of us in, in difficult situations, human life is hard life. Spoken with many in difficult situations this morning. But God, even in the difficulties and hardships of life, you are good to us. Your grace, your mercy are tangible in our lives. We love you and we need you this morning. We have gathered together in your name as you have commanded. We want to honor you and we want to hear your word. So speak Oh, God, to us, we need you. We are desperate for you as deer pant for water. God, our souls long for you. So your words of life impose upon us, arrest our hearts, our attention, and even more, arrest our affections this morning that we may serve you well. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, 
Amen. All right, beginning in chapter 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Now we just spent two weeks going through ten commandments, ten statements that God makes to his people. Uh, Aren't the ten sufficient? Uh, God, after giving his ten commands, now begins to unpack a little bit. And remember, he gives his ten commandments in the Sinai Peninsula. A mountain in front of them. On the other side of the mountain is the promised land. So still outside of the fulfilled promise, God gives his commands because they are binding, morally binding commands on all people in all places at all times. Because God knows how people should live. God knows how people can have the dominion he wants them to have. He knows how society built on the individual, built on the family, and then we have a society, good individuals following God's words, build good families that follow God's words, that build great societies based on the commands. God knows what he's doing. God knows how humans should live. He gives his commands, but God also knows the depravity of his creation. God knows the transformation that occurred within Adam and Eve as they were deceived by Lucifer in the garden. And now all their offspring born, uh, uh, conceived in sin, born with a nature desiring and longing to step out of the boundaries that God has created. And how that breaks society down as can clearly be uh, seen through the evidence of our own country and other countries around the world. God knows people are going to be trying to find the loopholes. Well, you know, he didn't specifically, he says don't steal, but there may be, right? There's always that situational uh, area where people try to build a new ethical and moral system from. Well, God says no, but in this situation, I think it's okay. So God now gives some directions for how those Ten Commandments play out so that no one can find a loophole or do something against which God has commanded. Beginning in verse 2, and there's a lot of stuff in here concerning verse 2, but we're going to chunk it all together here at the beginning. When you... Buy. Now underline that word. It's an important word. And it causes some people to think wrongly about what God is saying here. When you buy, underline a Hebrew slave. Underline that word slave. Now some of you just had the thought, what in God's name is God speaking about here? Could God condone slavery? Could God say that slavery is okay? I need you to understand you are thinking about slavery in a way uh, that comes from our context in the year 2022. There are three worlds of the text when we go to the text to interpret rightly the text. The first world is the world of the text. We've got to go 3,500 years back to understand society as it was then. The second world of the text, this is all hermeneutics. The second world of the text is the actual words on the page. We need to define those words as they were defined in the time period of their writing. Words have meaning. 
Now, I know in our postmodern context, words no longer have any meaning. People are constantly redefining every word to make it suit their own desires. But words, there can be no effective or meaningful communication if words have, don't have meaning. Words have meaning. These, these black ink letters on this white page have meaning. Again, unlike today where we're not in a recession... But we are, from the historical definition anyway. This word has meaning. Then we move to our world and the way that we interpret, and not only interpret rightly, but apply in the many different ways it can be applied in our context. So let's look at this word first, the second world of the text, slave. In the Hebrew, it is aved, which is spelled E-B-E-D when it's translated into English, but it's said with a V because that's just the way Jews talk. I don't know why. It's E-B-E-D, but it's, spe- it's a pronounced Aved. And Hebrew language, like the Greek language, uh, doulos in the New Testament when you see the household codes talking about servants and masters in Ephesians chapter 6 and, and in Colossians. Right? There's one word in Greek, For servant, there's one word in Hebrew for servant, but those can apply to a lot of different situations. Uh, English is one of the hardest languages to learn uh, because we could have 15 words. There are millions of words in the English language, and there can be as many as 10, 15 words to describe one thing uh, in our language. In the Hebrew, they had one word for lots of different things. Greek has one word for lots of different things. This word eved can refer to an actual slave. It can refer to a a servant. It can refer to a personal attendant. It it is referred in the Old Testament to uh, temple workers. It's referred to uh, uh, in the prophets. This word can mean servant of a person, servant of the Lord. It can mean a lot of different things. It's translated here as slave. Does God condone slavery as we understand it? Let's go 3,500 years back and now uh, unpack the context because of course that's not what God means. I'll prove it to you in a second. There are many examples of what we would call moral slavery in the Old Testament and even still today. There are people within slavery today in this room that is in a moral way. How does that work, Brent? Well, let's unpack this a little bit. Because when a person owes a debt, they should repay that debt. Would anyone disagree with that? No. Just, just to help you out, no. <laughs> right, if we get ourselves in, how many of you have a, mor- don't raise your hand, but if you hold a mortgage today for a home, chances are you get up early every morning, Monday through Friday, probably 6, 6.30, 7, some of you lucky people, you get to w- sleep till 7, but you wake up and you go to work. Why do you go to work? Because you just can't wait to get there. <laughs> no, you've got bills. And bills need to be paid. So you had to find a job that would pay you so that you could pay off your debts. In the ancient world, the economy, largely agricultural. So if you didn't have land, there wasn't just jobs, there wasn't Chick-fil-A. 
Christian organizations you could go work for. There wasn't Burger King and McDonald's, right? All the stuff that we have today. Uh, so jobs were harder to come by. But one thing a person could do if they owed debt is they could, as a free person, willingly submit their, themselves to servitude. They could, they could sell themselves to the highest bidder to work to pay off the debt that they owed. We call that, uh, in the New Testament, it's called being a bond servant, which is why the household codes, sometimes in your Bibles, in the newer translations, they will call uh, it employee-employer relationships instead of master or servant. But it means the same thing. When you owe, you got to pay, so you've got to work to pay off the debt. And this is what is primarily being referred to here. There is another a form of moral slavery, though. If someone was a thief and they stole and they were caught, but they had already sold what they had stolen and they had already uh, used the money up in the taverns of the, the local village, they would be sold to pay off the debt from which they stole. So when the Bible says... You shall buy it when you buy a Hebrew slave. It's talking about a moral kind of slavery where you're actually helping someone pay off a debt that they owe. But watch, because there are rules even in this situation. Human rights is something that God has brought before any human being ever thought of it. Even if someone uh, you buy and is serving you and your family to pay off a debt. They still have rights and they should be treated kindly in the same ways that you yourself are treated. They get a day off every week. The Sabbath is not just for you and your family. It's for uh, you, the, wor the workers that work for you. It's even for the animals, God says, that work for you. Every beast of burden gets Sabbath to rest. God's in charge. We are not. But look what is said here, uh, continuing in verse 2. So this slave shall serve six years, and on the seventh he shall go free for nothing. Six years is all they have to work to pay off that debt. And whether it's paid off or not, at the end of that six years, seventh year, they go free. And they don't go away empty-handed. Because God doesn't want them to fall right back into the same situation and have to sell themselves again. Uh, the owner, the one that bought them and work has, they've worked for six years for this person, has to send them with goats and, and, and parts of their herd and, and some money in their pocket so they can truly get a fresh start in life. Human rights are part of what God has designed within the society that he is building of free men and women. How do we know this isn't talking about other forms of slavery, what we would call immoral slavery, just like thou shalt not murder. It's not thou shalt not kill. There are times in self-defense when killing is appropriate. But murder is never appropriate. How do we know there's a difference between moral slavery and immoral slavery? Look at verse 16 of chapter 21. Here's how we know what God is, for sure what God is talking about and what he's not talking about. Whoever steals a man Thou shalt not steal. Part of the word itself is kidnapping. Did you know there is an estimated, because we kind of think we're done with slavery in 2022, but there is an estimated 40 million people still immorally enslaved in our world today, mostly women and children. God says and is clear 
Why is this important? Why are you taking so much time, Brent? Because you need to hear when that atheist sits you down and say, says, how can you be a Christian? God promotes slavery in the Bible. You can look at him and say, oh, you have PhDs, but you are grossly misinformed. <laughs> he likes that. <laughs> right? Obviously, you don't know how to study ancient languages. You're completely wrong on this. Look at verse 16. Whoever steals a man... There are times when a free person willingly puts themselves into the service of others to pay off debts that they have incurred and that they owe. But no one is ever to take a free man against their will and put them in an enslaved condition. That has been wrong always from the very beginning. God has condemned it. It is sin every time, every place that it occurs. And not only the person who steals, who kidnaps and sells is guilty, the person who buys is guilty as well, according to verse 16. They both shall be put to death because God gives life. No one can take life away. No one can take the freedom that God has given us to flourish and survive and follow his commandments and get away with it. There are consequences for sin. This is God's word, and his word is true, and every man who would say otherwise is a liar. Amen? Amen. This is why, even in our own country, it was the Protestant church who led the way of the abolition movement. We read our Bibles, and we knew what was happening was wrong, and we wanted to make it right Skip down to verse 12. Go back to verse 12, I should say. Common sense directions to follow the Ten Commandments according to God. Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Life for life. God is a God who believes in capital punishment. And all the Texans said, "Woo!" Listen, there has got to be, you can't have law without teeth. In the law, God not only has law, but the consequences he puts in place are to serve a society that is growing and flourishing in deterring us from the base desires that we can all succumb to at any moment. Law without teeth is not law and not order. You got to have law and order. You got to have law with teeth to it. You murder some person. You take a life you shouldn't have taken. You have to pay with your own life. That stops a lot of murders. But watch, there's a caveat, because sometimes people die on accident. Sometimes you end up in the wrong place at the wrong time, and you're in some, back when, you know, back when you were a a dirty sinner, you're in some bar. (laughs) See how I caveated that? Right, some guy sits up next to you and you're both, you've had too much to drink and all of a sudden the one guy says something about your mama and you don't ever talk about somebody's mama and a fight breaks out and a bottle gets smashed on somebody's head and somebody dies. Well, that wasn't premeditated. We didn't mean, we didn't come there looking to fight or to, to, to murder someone. So what happens then? God has common sense rules. If he did not lie in wait for him, if it wasn't premeditated, But God let him fall into his hand. Then I will appoint for you a place which he may flee 
still a trial, still have to, still have to present cases. Can even, there are even still uh, repercussions and consequences even when someone is uh, killed accidentally. But there is a place you can go to escape the vengeance, the revenge, the blood guilt the other family is going to feel towards you. Uh, Joshua, just write this down in the margins of your notes. Joshua chapter 20 verses 1 through 5. We've read about those cities of refuge. When bad things happen that you didn't mean for them to happen, there's a place you can go. Still consequences, but there's a place you can go. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill by cunning... You shall not take him from my you shall take him from my altar that he may die life for life. Look at verses 15 and 17. As God builds off the fifth commandment to honor, what does it look like to honor father and mother? Well, it means not to punch them. Don't strike your father, don't strike your mother, verse 15 says. Or look how important the family, the building block of great society. If you want a great society, you got to start with great families and work your way up. Lots of great families make a great society. When the family breaks down, society breaks down. So honor parents. Don't strike them nor curse them. Verse 17, whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Let's move down to verse 22. This one's important. As many of you think the only pro-life verses are uh, for children in their mother's womb is Jeremiah or the psalm. But no, this is where you need to take people. Verse 22, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out. Right, if a pregnant woman is struck and it induces labor causes a child to be born prematurely, right? Number one, why did God make men with bigger bones, bigger structure to, to, to house bigger muscles for those who work their bodies hard? God gave men bigger frames to protect and to provide. And a man should never use the strength that God has given to abuse or to harm those who are smaller than he. So when this occurs to a pregnant woman, and the baby comes out prematurely, if there is no harm to that baby. Actually, the woman might say, praise God, you saved me a month and a half of pure torture, and the baby is fine and healthy. There's still a consequence, because a man should never strike a woman, ever, under any circumstance, at any time. Hopefully you're teaching your children this. Brothers and sisters, fight, Amen. Hannah and Briar, not as much, but James and Abby, good Lord, we had to break them up all the time. And I would always sit James David down and say, under no, you're, my job and your job is to protect, not harm. Never a circumstance, ever. Doesn't matter how mad they made you. Never okay. There's still a consequence, even if the baby is fine. And that consequence, that fine is up to the husband. How many of you know that's going to go poorly for the guy that hit a pregnant woman? Because the husband's going to bring the full force of the law. He's going to go to the judges, which is what he should do. 
As the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. So the husband's going to come plead his case and the judges are going to say, here's your fine for doing what you should not have done. Thank goodness the baby's okay. But if the baby's not okay, hear this next verse. If the unborn, your striking induces labor and that baby is born in a way that's not okay. Here's this famous verse from the Old Testament, but you never knew it was this kind of context. You shall repay if there is harm. You shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That baby comes out and its head's got a dent and it's blind. It's lost an eye. You lose an eye. Because you caused that through your sin, eye for eye. If the jaw is broken, your jaw gets broke. If there's any kind of deformity, if an arm is broken, your arm is broken because it should have never happened and your sin has consequences. And this is God saying, even life in the womb has the same rights as those outside of the womb. God is, God gives life. No man, no woman has the authority to take life. God will repay for what we incur. Skip down with me. We go, and verse 28 begins with rules of property, rules of personal responsibility. If you have a dog, and your dog is a sweet dog, never had a problem, and he bites somebody. Well, you're not, uh, right, there's some restitution that needs to happen, but, but, but you're not going to be held uh, liable as a person. But if your dog, you let your dog out and you know your dog is cantankerous, you know you, you got a poodle, right? <laughs> Poodles are the meanest dogs on God's green planet Earth. My, my uh, well, pit bulls maybe. Uh, but my uncle had, had a, a poodle. This little bitty, stupid, fuzzy little thing. His name was Ginger. And he, it only liked my Uncle Ron. He didn't, that poodle didn't like anybody else. Anytime you could go near it, just, just a mean little demonic thing. Right? If you know and you let the dog loose and, and no leash, right? you are held to the full responsibility of the law. You should have known better. Personal responsibility, God, through, through the donkeys and the ox. And if you dig a pit and somebody else's donkey falls into it, guess what? You just bought yourself a dead donkey. you got to pay for that donkey, and you get what's left. Personal responsibility. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we lived in a world... Where instead of paying $130,000 to some lawyer to get somebody to take responsibility for their actions. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing? Well, that's God's economy. And God's word is true. And every man is a liar. That begins in verse 28 and moves through chapter 22. But let's move quickly to uh, verse 16 of chapter 22. Laws about social justice. This is a hot topic, hot button in our world today. Yep. Because what is justice? Well, justice God determines, not groups of people determine. Let's look. Verse 16, let's begin. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed, 
Now, we know what this is, but young ladies in this room that are unmarried, listen to Pastor Brent this morning. Boys are turds. And praise God, you're at church, so hopefully you fall in love with a young man that loves Jesus and wants to honor God. If he doesn't love Jesus, what should you do? Run away! Because little boys will say anything to go, I love you. We're going to be together forever. It's always been you. Remember our Song of Solomon series, Stay in the Tower. He's going to be out at the fence. Come to me, my love. We're Romeo and Juliet. Oh, the things that will come out of his mouth to get what he wants. Stay in the tower. Because he will seduce. What does that mean? Do you like M&M's? He's going to lay M&M's down in a line. At the door of the tower. And you're going to look down. Oh, look at the little trailer. He's, he's taking care of me. <laughs> that line of M&M's will just lead right to his bedroom. <laughs> Stay in the tower. Because the young man will try to seduce. If a man does seduce a virgin who is betrothed and he lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Now watch this. Now, how many of you, when you were growing up, you were watching Disney movies and you were always mad at the king or the person in charge who had betrothed his daughter to, to some other prince and she couldn't fall in love with whoever she wanted to fall in love with? And how terrible a society! And then we have kids of ourselves and we realize what a much better system this is. In every marriage counseling session I have ever done, I always start out with this. You don't marry a person. You marry a family. Amen? If her, verse 17, if her father utterly refuses, because according to just verse 16, a guy's like, well, all I got to do is seduce her, bring her to my room, have my way, and then I get her. Doesn't matter what her dad says. I'm going to marry her anyway. <laughs> Look at the pop culture references just flowing from the tongue. When, my da- when I first heard that song my daughter was playing, I was like, no, I don't like that song. We're not going to listen to that. Just so rude. I, can't, I don't remember how it goes, but... If the father, he has the right to still refuse even then. If the father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall still pay the money equal to the bride price for virgins. Sin has consequences. And sometimes you don't get your cake and get to eat it too. Amen? Amen. Common sense. Common sense. They're God's system for law and order. Look at verse 19. And again, we need to begin to, to kind of to move. But, and I hate that I even have to bring this up out of all this other stuff in here that we could talk about. I feel in 2022, we've got to talk about this one. Because we already have government employees in high positions. Our tax dollars are paying for who post 
pictures of him as a dog with a leash around his neck being led by his person whom he's in a relationship with. Our world is getting, our world is sick and it's getting sicker. The Bible calls it perversion, depravity, and God turns us over once we give ourselves over to perversion, to what he calls a reprobate mind, no longer even able to tell the difference between pure from impure, right from wrong, good for evil. We live in that world now. And it's not long until we need to put this verse on a coffee cup. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. That seems harsh. It's unnatural. It's unholy. It defames all that God has created us to be. It lowers our, our, our human existence and nature itself. Created in God's image and likeness, the debased mind that would, that would do something like this. And look, this was a rule 3,500 years ago. Because when the family breaks down, society breaks down, and we always end up here with rules like this. It's like that movie Idiocracy. We just get dumber and dumber and dumber and dumber until we're trying to water crops with Gatorade. <laughs> It's what sin does to us. Sin doesn't make us more free, quite the opposite. Sin makes us more enslaved than we could ever have thought possible. Like my dad used to tell me, sin will take you farther than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. And you know what I always thought when dad would say that? I always thought, well, not me. Maybe you, maybe somebody in the Bible, maybe there's a story out there somewhere where that's true, but not me. Everything's going to be, isn't that the curse of the young? You don't know what you don't know. Not me, that'll never happen. But as my dad said, payday always comes. Nobody gets, you may get away with sin for a month. You may get away with it for a year. You may get away with it for a decade. But payday always comes. We just saw a CEO a couple weeks ago jump out of a 56-story building because he'd gotten away with it for a while. But payday always comes. And there are consequences for our sin. Look with me at verse 21. We've got to hurry. Actually, skip verse... Ah, no, we can't skip this. 21. You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. A sojourner is a traveler passing through, a stranger, a foreigner. You shall not take advantage of the sojourner. He doesn't know your ways. He doesn't know your customs. How many of you have ever been on the streets of a big city? Maybe you flew to Chicago. Maybe you had a conference in New York. There's people all along the streets because what do they know? A sucker's born every minute. You don't take advantage of the person who doesn't know your city, who doesn't know the dangers. You don't oppress for they, for you. Why? For you were once sojourners. God, have you ever wondered why God allowed 400 years of immoral slavery for his people? They were free. They go to Egypt and they're enslaved against their will. That's immoral slavery. 
Just like what happened to Joseph. His brothers kidnapped him and sold him off against his will. That's immoral slavery. God allowed that to happen. Why? Because God reached down and picked his people up from the lowest station on the planet and raised, like David said in the psalm, I was in the pit, but you took me and you set my feet. You brought me high. You set my feet upon a rock. You put a new song in my heart. And when that occurs, we can't forget from where God has redeemed and lifted us from. And the same compassion, mercy that God shows us, we should show to those less fortunate. Watch what he says, verse 22. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child, an orphan. Throughout Old and New Testament, widows and orphans, God speaks of. And James, a true religion is to take care of the widow and the orphan. I think it's one twenty. it's I think the last verse of that chapter there in one. Why? Because widows and orphans historically have the hardest time taking care of themselves. Some make it, but most don't. God always, his ear is attentive to the prayers of those who can't help themselves. And he calls his people to help those who can't help themselves. Remember, that was once you. And if you don't, if you do mistreat them, verse 23 And they cry out to me, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn. And it doesn't say I will murder, it says I will kill. Murder is unjust killing, killing is just killing. We deserve what we get when we mistreat the orphan or the widow. I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Look at verse 9, because he says the same thing. You shall not oppress, in chapter 23, I'm sorry. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Forget not where you come from. Now go back to the beginning of chapter 23. Man, I have already skipped a lot of stuff that the first two services got, and somehow I'm still behind. But this is important. Again, talking about social justice. How do we not pervert justice in this world? We take care of widows and orphans. Right? We don't wrong the the sojourner, the foreigner. That's who we used to be. Very fitting in a nation of immigrants, isn't it? Those verses. But watch this. Because there is justice and there's a right way to do things. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many, underline that, the many to do evil. Nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many. Underline it again. Just because there's a large group of people who want one thing. And just because their voice is the loudest does not mean that they are right. 
In fact, the Bible has a lot to say against mob rule. Our founding fathers wanted a democratic style of republic based off the Greeks and, and other republics that they had witnessed with some level of success throughout history. But they were wary and highly uh, threatened by the idea of mob rule because anytime you see a mob, they're almost always wrong. If you ever find yourself with a torch in one hand and a pitchfork in the other, just know you're probably on the wrong side of things. Just because the mob is loud does not mean they're right. Don't side with the many. Don't not give yourself fully to truth just because the mob says one thing. That perverts true justice. The truth that comes from God's mouth. Now there's a flip side. There's a ditch on the other side of the road. Just because the many are shouting and yelling one thing doesn't mean they're right. But there's also individual circumstances where compassion takes over. But you shouldn't let it. Watch this. Verse 3. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If the many have done wrong, it doesn't matter what points they're making. They're wrong. Don't side with the mob. But also in the case of a single man who's poor. Maybe he was a war vet and came out, became an alcoholic. Just just bad situation after bad situation. But if that man has done wrong, it doesn't matter how low his station. There's actually a great book called When Helping Hurts. Sometimes in our compassion, which we're to have compassion, amen, the way that God had compassion on us. But when someone has done wrong, we don't sweep justice under the rug and let them get away with it because that perverts justice and that ruins all of society. God hates favoritism. James chapter 2, let there be no partiality among you. When the rich come in, don't side with them because they're rich and you think you can get your palm greased a little bit. Some of their wealth will trickle down if you side with them. That's, that's favoritism. God hates it. Same with the poor man. If they've done wrong, you don't sweep it under the rug just because they're poor. No, justice must be justice in every case. We cannot pervert justice based off our compassion or off our sinful desires to be in the zeitgeist or in the right crowd. It's a good sermon whether you like it or not. (laughs) Starting in verse 10 of chapter 23 now. God goes back and he redefines his covenant with Israel. And remember, he made an unconditional covenant with Abram. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a nation out of you. And God did that through the years of Egypt. There's a couple million people now. that He's fixing to move into a promised land just like he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now that they are a free people, made free by the righteous right hand of God, there is a way in which they should live to maintain that freedom. God says, if you will do these things, if you'll remember my commands and obey them, I'll continue to be with you. This is conditional. You do these things, I'll continue to do these things, God says. He speaks about remembering There's three feasts mentioned here, and we don't have time to get into them. But the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which we saw back in Exodus chapter 12, when God says it's time, you don't have, you've got to be ready. 
The unleavened bread represented the haste in which God brought his people out of slavery. When God is ready to deliver, deliverance happens, amen? The Feast of Unleavened Bread is to to every year remind them of God's great salvation and how sin leavens the whole lump. The unleavened bread reminded them of God's commands and to obey them to maintain the freedom that he's brought them into. There's the Feast of Harvest, which is also called the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost later on because it happened on the 50th day after the Sabbath of Passover. That's the day we call Easter, by the way. There to remember how God sustained them and, and, and uh, helped them in the wilderness wanderings to be able to eat. And then there is the feast of uh, the ingathering, the last harvest. There, there's several harvests of a season. There's the, the first fruits, which is the, the feast of harvest, uh, the feast of weeks, the feast of Pentecost. Uh, but the feast of ingathering is that last harvest. God did sustain and they were to remember God's many benefits and blessings through the wilderness wanderings of themselves and later on the ancestors that experienced all of these things. So move now with me to chapter 24 because God confirms this covenant. If you do these things, I will be your God. I will be with you. And uh, ushers, if you will go ahead and come. We're going to end this service in communion together, sharing the body and the blood of our Lord Jesus. Because there's two ways God confirms. God gives these additional directions. He's given these commands. He gives these directions. He wants the people to stay free. Obey me. Stay free. Be blessed. Be fruitful. Listen to me. If you do, I'm going to be with you every step of the way. Verse 3 of chapter 24, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're going to do these things just like God says. And so God confirms his covenant with the people in two ways. The first through blood and the second through a meal. Let's talk about blood first. Beginning in verse 4, going through verse 8. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. We're reading them today. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins. And half of the blood he threw against the altar. Half the blood from these offerings he threw on the altar as an offering unto the Lord. But what did he do with the other half? Watch this. He took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, again, second time, we're going to do everything the Lord has spoken. We will do it. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. And said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. God gives his commands. The people say, We obey. And blood is is thrown on the altar unto the Lord. And thrown on the people. Can you imagine being in the garden? What if I brought, and if you've never harvested an animal, when that occurs, that blood is warm. Much warmer than you may expect. What if you're sitting in church one day and I just take a big old bowl of blood and just warm, fresh blood, just throw it all over you? You'd probably be like, what is going on? 
But this blood is significant. It's so significant in so many ways. Some of you, if I just throw a bunch of warm blood on you from a fresh kill, your reaction would probably be... Why? Because blood is disgusting. Life has been taken. God wants us to recognize the symbol of blood. Our sin is disgusting to God. He's perfect and righteous. Our sin is of great offense. It makes him gag. God says in Revelation, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. As disgusting as blood is to us, our sin, it reminds us of the disgusting offense our sin has unto God. But even one step further from that, thank you, Killian. The blood is a foreshadowing of the necessary sacrifice to cover our sins. Just like the blood of the perfect lamb was applied to the doorposts of God's people in Egypt so that the wrath of God would pass over. Now as God has given his directions and the people say, we will, this covenant is sealed by blood being thrown not just on the altar to appease the wrath of God, but thrown on the people, running down their faces as a foreshadowing of the blood that covers us, covering us and atoning for our sins. It is a reminder of the cross of Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb slain for our sin. His blood covers us. We need His blood. Only Christ satisfied every righteous requirement. As we've been reading these directions, if one of these that we mentioned didn't hit you, there's more in there. Trust me. We all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. We all deserve His wrath. Oh, but when the blood of Christ, righteous in His human perfection, not only did He never do what was wrong, He never failed to do something that was right to do at the time, in the moment. There was no sin of omission or commission. He did everything perfectly, and it is His blood thrown upon. It's why we remember his body and his blood because it is his blood that covers us giving us access to the meal that confirms the covenant as well first way the covenant is confirmed is through blood the second is through a meal read 9 through 11 with me then Moses and Aaron Nadab and Abihu and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. God is a consuming fire. Everything he touches is either burnt up or made pure. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men, as he rightfully could have done. But covering them was the blood of the sacrifice so God did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, but instead they beheld God and they ate and they drank. Instead, 
because of the blood that had atoned for their sin, the blood that covered them. They were invited in to the bounty of the table of the Lord. A meal in the ancient world, understand the significance. When the foreigner came to the city gates, right, God's people were commanded to show hospitality, to bring, to give the very best that you have to offer. A meal was one of the most uh, uh, sanctified, holy moments that could be shared with another person outside of your family. And God, through the blood of our great sin offering Christ, now shares his table for eternity with us. 